Hi, everybody. Mitch Album here, host of the Tuesday People podcast. Lisa Goich, friend and producer, is alongside as well. Uh, a brief introduction to this particular episode of Tuesday People podcast. We had a chance to record the interview that you're about to hear before COVID-19 became a daily reality for all of us. And for a while, we held off running this interview because uh, the world was a very unsure place. In many ways, it still remains that way. But we thought this interview at this point in time would be good to hear uh, because it was with a, a woman who is a self-described death doula. And what that means is uh, someone who helps people as the final moments are approaching uh, to take some of the horror out of the experience and bring all parties involved, not only the person who is about to make the passage, but also that person's loved ones, into the process. And while COVID-19 has robbed many of us of the ability to do that in traditional funeral forms, in being there even for final moments, it has made us all think about how are we going to deal with the end for ourselves and for our loved ones, even in a unusual environment like this where we are separated. And so we thought this might be an appropriate time to run this interview, but wanted to tell you about it ahead of time so you can put it in its proper context. So here comes the interview that I'm mentioning, and hopefully you'll find it an inspiring and insightful conversation. The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. Do you want to be held in your final moments? Is being touched important? Probably. 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 I haven't really gone all the way with it. But that might be good if it feels comfortable for the people doing it. And how many, you know, it could be just a family, it could be family close friends. Well, with you, it could be a line 30, 35 miles long. That's one way. The other way is just to die sort of peacefully. And not the being held, but just knowing that the people are there. I really haven't made up my mind what would be the most uh, comforting. I think I'll just wait and see. That was the voice of Maury Schwartz, the Maury of the book Tuesdays with Maury, and I am Mitch Album, the author of the book Tuesdays with Maury, and you are joining us on Tuesday People, a podcast based on the lessons learned from that book 25 years ago, uh, which have resonated around the world, certainly resonated with me, 
and thought that, well, it would be a good idea after 25 years to see how much I've actually learned from that last class with my old professor and revisit it through the eyes of someone who's now a lot closer to the age that Maury was than the age that I was when I first met him. And of course, you heard in that cut there talking about death and our acceptance of death, which was really, I think, one of the reasons that Tuesdays with Maury became the book that it did, because I remember, uh, I don't really read reviews of books, but I remember somebody sent me a sentence from something in the Boston Globe that said this was an important, the book was an important contribution to the literature of death. And I thought, hmm, you know, uh, how much literature of death really is there out there? And how much do people really talk about it? And it really got me thinking that uh, at the time, 1997, there wasn't as much recognition of how important understanding dying was as there has been over the last 25 years. I think there's been developments in that area. I like to think Tuesdays with Maury had a small, 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 small part in getting people to be able to talk about dying without freaking out, without feeling like, oh my God, I can't deal with it. It's too big. I'm so sad. I'm so depressed. Because the fact is we are all going to die. Mm -hmm. And it amazes me that if you think about the industry that has grown up around birth, from birth coaches to Lamaze classes to, uh, you know, what to expect when you're expecting and what's going to happen in the first day the baby's born. I mean, it's, it's endless. It's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry of preparing for life, but there's almost nothing right. about preparing for death. Lisa Goitz is alongside me, our longtime producer and friend. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here, Mitch. And along those lines, we want to welcome a guest to today's program who embodies exactly what I'm talking about, about, hey, maybe we should be paying attention to our dying days and how to best deal with that with at least some matching degree to what we spend with bringing babies into the world. Jill Shock is what is known as a death doula. And what does that mean? Well, that's why we had Jill come sit down with us, because she's going to explain that. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. What is a doula? Well, a lot of people will recognize that name from the birthing doula movement, but the word doula itself is Greek, and it means a woman in service. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of took that birth doula word and kind of the concept of what they were doing. So meeting a woman as they progress along their pregnancy through their labor and after. And we sort of converted that to how we work with the dying. So before your death, you know, as you know, you have a terminal diagnosis going through that, your actual dying process. And then what do we do with your body after? So it's very similar. It just has three different components. Your background uh, includes uh, a number of years working with hospice, yes. which is probably, minus the doula word, a lot of what you just sort of uh, interpreted as working with people who are dying. Mm -hmm. um, was there something in your personal life that drew you to this field? Well, yeah. So when I went to college, I, I set myself up actually to work in museums. Um, so I had no uh, expectation to be stepping into the death care space. It wasn't until death really interrupted my life in a very harsh way um, where I found myself in a space thinking, 
well, why didn't anybody help us through that? Why didn't anybody guide us through that process? Because when we came out of it, everybody was shattered. So it was sort of me starting at the bottom of the trauma that death can cause. And then looking into the reasons why and how we made sense through that time, which led me to go back to school to sort of study how people um, cope with their life and manage their life when it's interrupted by terminal illness, death, or crisis. So what would you say is, from your years both working with hospice and now as a death doula, Mm -hmm. to begin with, what would you say is the thing that most people get tripped up over when they find out that what should not be a shock to them, that they are actually going to die. Mm. Maury was famous for saying, you know, everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. Right. And, uh, you know, it is true. I I remember when I was younger, always thinking that, well, yeah, I know, like, I know we're going to die, but my generation will invent a pill that we'll be able to take just before that, and we won't have to die. And it was kind of that young, youthful, crazy, I'm going to live forever way of saying, I'm not going to have to face this reality. Did you have that same fantasy? Kind of that same fantasy, but also I think it's it's a, um, you think it's so far down the road, you never, first of all, you never think when you're in your 20s that it could happen to you, or in your 30s. That's just impossible, yet we all know it happens to everybody at every age. Even when you get to my age now, I'm in my 50s, I I still think, oh, well, my dad's in his 90s. It's not going to happen for right. 40 more years. Right. So you just always put it off. And, and in right. putting it off, I think you think, it's not going to happen. But when it comes, <laughs> and, in, and you mentioned, Jill, in the form of usually, because let's face it, we don't all know what, that we're going to die. Right. Some of us, it happens very quickly or abruptly. There's an accident or something. Mm-hmm. But for people who actually have been diagnosed or told, okay, you have terminal illness, there's nothing we can do to stop this from eventually taking your life. When that happens to someone, what have you found to be the most universal um, mountain in front of them that they first have to get over? So when people actually do, you know, have an illness that's going towards potentially terminal or non-curable, that's really where the conversation can be uh, convoluted or even dropped because the healthcare system wasn't really designed to say, you know, here's your list of options which are all curative, but also you don't have to choose any of those. You can go home and die, that's okay as well. So really when people are terminal, they're still getting a lot of options thrown at them, like- Medical options. Medical Medical options, yes. Um, For cancer, a lot of times they'll say palliative chemo, which is the same as regular chemo. So it's like a Hail Mary. It sounds like something they can do for you. And they've taken an oath to first do no harm. So having somebody there to guide those conversations and say, well, wait a minute, stop. This is also something that you can do and you're empowered to do. Because if you have to die, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So stopping there and pausing there and letting them know this is also an option, is kind of a key that opens the whole door to people understanding that they can have the death that they really want instead of getting stuck in the hospital, stuck with treatments, surgeries, any kind of life-preserving treatments that they don't want. Yeah, that's exactly what happened with my mom, by the way, because uh, my mom started uh, kidney dialysis, but everything was failing in her at that point. And um, she fell at one of her appointments and was just done. She was just done. But she didn't know that she could be done. 
And it took my sister saying, well, you don't have to do your dialysis anymore. And mm -hmm. one of the doctors at the hospital said to my mom, yeah, you don't have to. This is your choice. But she never knew that. Right. So mm -hmm. what you're bringing up is a very instructive point to begin with. Number one, it is possible to say, I accept the fact that I am going to die. And I accept the fact that I don't have to go out swinging in order to have uh, the fullest life. Right. Uh, my last moments on earth don't have to be an injection of yet another drug that's not going to work after another drug that's not going to work just to feel like, well, I'm trying to live. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people feel, not just the individual, the people around them, we're giving up. You know, well, we can't give up. Giving up. Right. Yeah, that's the language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. How, but, how, how uh, destructive can that phrase alone be? Well, it evokes a sense of guilt, right? right? For the person. And and that's one of the biggest problems we have around death and dying is, what do we think of? We think it's a punishment. We think we've done things in our life and that we deserve to die. Um, we think we've given up. Um, and the medical system really sees us as a failure. So really, there's a lot of guilt. And so you will see commonly people say, okay, I'm going to fight, I'm going to do whatever I can. But ultimately, that can take the chance of having a calm, peaceful death away from them. Right. Listen to a cut that we're going to play here uh, where Maury, who was suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease, which at his age uh, and having made a decision that he would not have certain procedures like a tracheotomy or things like that that can kind of, you know, sustain you, uh, it was a death sentence. And he talks here about having to accept that. First of all, I would feel I want to resist it. I don't want to do it. You know, things are too interesting. Life is too full of loving people that I get and give to. So the resistance would come up. Oh, another form of not wanting to is ignoring it, saying, denying that it's your fate at this particular time. So. I've had that too. Then this sort of giving up, saying, yeah, has to happen. So I may as well give into it. Sort of like a surrender. Okay, I give up. Now that's not the same thing with acceptance. Mm -hmm. Acceptance say, you know, everybody has to die. It's my turn. I'm ready. When time goes, I'm here to be taken. So you hear there that there is a man who has said, okay, I am a dying man, and that is a, a new state of being, but it's not any different than being, you know, a young person, a school, a student, uh, a newlywed, a new father. It's another phase of life. How important is it for, and is that something that you as a, as a doula try to talk to your clients I, I don't know if you call them patients or clients I call them or clients, friends or, clients okay, sometimes clients. friends yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that okay dying is a state of being as well the point of fact you could argue we're all dying right now you know we're all in the process of it but that very end stage of it is a process and, and if you can accept it as just another stage of life you can begin to think of it minus the horror yeah. Yeah. And what I really encourage people to do is see it as that, you know, final space or stage of life that they have a lot of control of. And 
actually they have they have a way of designing it. You know, um, something I encourage in my practice is that people come and say goodbye before the death actually occurs. So instead of waiting till we have a body in a box in the grounds, Mm -hmm. we're looking in their eyes one-on-one knowing that this is our last time to say goodbye. And to give people that moment, it's good for the person who's dying, and it's good for the person who's going to be left behind as well. And just encouraging people, this is something you can do. It's like a light bulb goes off. They're like, wow, this is something I never even thought of before. And then you go into it with them further. What else would you like in your atmosphere? Let's talk about sound. Let's talk about light. Let's talk about scent. Um, Let's talk about who you want around you. Do you want people to be there while you're dying? Do you want to be in a room by yourself? Um, What do you want done with your body? Do you want your loved ones washing your body after you die? Um, So there's so much control that people can have during this space. And offering it to them really empowers them to design their own great death. I would imagine it empowers them also, and that's a good word, at a time when they feel the most powerless. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because medicine is not giving them the answer that they were seeking, uh, where you think, all right, we'll get power in medicine or power in doctors, we'll cure this, you know, that I'm going to war with it and I'm going to win. If you're not going to win, then obviously you feel powerless. But if you say, okay, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to beat the ALS, not going to beat the cancer, not going to beat that, but it's not going to beat me in terms of like controlling my final days and how I want to see myself. I would imagine that that actually gives people a sense of control. Have you, do you notice like when they actually sort of grasp this Mm -hmm. as sense as I noticed in Maury of almost peace of a contentment that we in our healthy lives can only begin to almost envy because I, the whole time I was with Maury, I was constantly saying, you're so much more content with your existence than I am with mine, and mine is not have an expiration date on it right now, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm aware of, and yours does, mm-hmm. but yet you're at peace, you're calm, and I'm running around, and I'm going up and down, my emotions are all that. Do you notice that? Yeah, so what I notice is actually what this giving this control or giving this empowerment is actually doing, it's actually changing the way that we grieve into a healthier model. Um, So this was healthy for Maury as he goes through his stages of, of dying. You know, he was really able to get that chance to talk about it and say goodbye. And in turn, that was actually healing you as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, this is actually a new model of grief that I feel like people would be better off embracing instead of waiting until the death has happened and then we're really separated from that space that we had. So that's why your work with Maury has been so prolific because we're pragmatically hearing from him what this is like and it really sets that tone for the healthier grieving model. And one of his... accomplishments i guess which now has become more common but back then i remember being asked about constantly wherever i went people couldn't believe it and were so delighted when they heard it that he had a living funeral yes that he said i don't want to his his way was you know all these people he had gone to a funeral after his als diagnosis in a wheelchair he had come back and he said to his wife you know what a shame 
my friend never got to hear all those great things right. that all those people had to say that. about yeah. him. He said, <laughs> if, if, if there's people out there that have something good to say about me, I want to hear it now, yeah, you know, while absolutely. I'm still here. Yeah. And so he invited them all over, and they had this living funeral where uh, one by one, very similar to a, a typical funeral, the mourners, quote unquote, you know, stood up and said what Maury meant to them. And, yes. uh, but the difference was at the very end, the deceased, quote unquote, who was not yet deceased, got to stand up and thank everybody who had come in the room. Mm. And this just blew the minds of people, uh, not just in, in America, but in other parts of the world where I would go, Japan, I remember in particular, and they were certain countries where they just kind of do not talk about somebody dying it's just taboo that he would embrace this and have a celebration of it have you witnessed things is that something that a doula encourages and what have you found to be you know the results of those things this is something that i encourage with all of my clients um again because it changes that model of grief um and it really works with it but you know it's your work with maury it's 25 years ago. This this is instinctual for us. This actually makes sense to us. The idea that we need to have a funeral later has been actually sold to us. So what I think we're seeing is that people were reclaiming this. We're like, this makes total sense. You, were, Lisa, you were saying, of course I would want to do that. I would want to do that. Yeah, you would, would probably want to do that. I mean, if I have the chance, right? Yeah, if you have the chance. You hope you have that chance to do right. something like that. And we are lucky if we get to have a conscious dying process. Accidents are different, but um, but don't are yeah. people scared to do that because they feel like once I do that, then I have really accepted the fact that I'm dying. I'm so it is a very intense space right because the emotionality of it's very high we really are saying goodbye there's tears there's laughter there's support but really what it does is after then you know that the dying person has said goodbye to their loved ones it sort of gives them that finality okay i've done that part and now i can go into my dying space which is a lot of it is unconscious so what i've noticed is that when people are in their unconscious dying space and they have these living funerals they actually have an easier time letting go because in that space they're not thinking i didn't say goodbye to this person or i mm -hmm. still need mm -hmm. to forgive this person and so it's it's a lot healthier for them and it gives them it's it's um, a better process for them when they're unconscious. You mentioned forgive this person as a phrase. How much does forgiveness play into these things? In family systems, quite a bit. Quite a bit, I think. Um, and even, of course, with friends and loved ones as well. But I notice a lot of the forgiveness goes to family. And it's maybe not even like the biggest fights that they've ever had. But, you know... It's, it's little moments of forgiveness that come up, and they actually do mean quite a lot to both people. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I stole that recipe. Sorry, I never returned that dress. Right, it can be funny, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, those are, tend to be the little things that people hang on to for yeah. way, long, yeah. way too long a period of time. I tried to do that with my mom at the end. I, I, I crashed my mom's car when I was in high school, and I thought, now's the time to finally fess up, right? That's so funny. And, uh, and so I sat down with her, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to do this. I said, I just have to tell you something that I just need to tell you this before you go. And she just looked at me, and she said, Lisa, honey, you are such a good girl. I go, can't do it. <laughs> I never got it out. Yeah. I never got it out. She just, I don't want to ruin her perception of <laughs> no, it. No, I was like, she just looked, I'm like, either she knows 
You know what I mean? Like, I think maybe she knew and she was just like, you don't need to tell me everything's fine, you know? But. Right. What about, oh, let me ask about some specific um, afflictions mm-hmm. that you have dealt with as you're in your role as a doula, as well as in your role as a hospice worker, as we're talking to Jill Schock, who now considers herself uh, and calls herself a death doula, mm-hmm. and, uh, someone who guides you, same way as, I guess, like midwives help guide, you know, exactly. uh, babies into the world helping to guide someone out of the world. So dementia, Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. these are particularly challenging diseases because we don't know when they're actually going to snuff out the final breath of life, uh, but they are a decaying and uh, debilitating uh, set of diseases that bring our loved ones to a point where they no longer recognize us or we no longer recognize them. And so some of this stuff that if you were talking perhaps about someone with cancer or someone where you you remain cognitive until your body fails, this is a mind thing. And so how do you navigate Mm -hmm. that? Well, so in the past, the way that we've had to navigate it is that... I'm already meeting people in a space where their cognitive ability is diminished or gone. So normally I'm working with their families and what they're noticing is that, you know, their loved one isn't participating in the activities as much. Usually they're at an assisted living with memory care um, or they are sort of withdrawing in a way they're not really accepting food. And that's the point where I talk to people about, what it means to die of Alzheimer's dementia. If you let the disease progress, what happens is that people actually forget how to swallow. So the ultimate danger for them is choking or aspirating by being overfed. Mm. Us as family and caregivers, because their body is fine, Mm -hmm. or so we believe, um, we're gonna keep feeding them or pushing water fluids. And so what we really have to watch out for is that moment where they might not be able to take that anymore. If they're holding food in their cheeks, if they're spitting food back out, if they're turning their head away from a spoon, those are the indications for me to talk to families about just letting them slow down with their eating, always offer, never force. And then essentially they go into their unconscious dying state, which is sleeping into it. Mm-hmm. And hospice, of course, palliates their pain and comfort symptoms from there. Um, but it's a much different subset of death than a cancer patient would be, right. um, which is usually a lot faster. Um, with Alzheimer's dementia, I can deal with families for a year plus. So in those cases, you're mostly dealing more with family members than you are with the actual dying person. Yes, I am. But now what we're looking at is actually we have the opportunity to fill out Alzheimer's and dementia directives that we can put in with our pre-planning advanced directives. So the person themselves, before they lose their mind, we actually have their words on a page. Mm -hmm. Once I'm doing this, 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 please stop feeding me. So before we were kind of doing some guesswork, whereas now we're dealing with actually hard legal directives, Mm -hmm. which is much more helpful. And we've talked about older people. We've talked about dementia and Alzheimer's. These are almost exclusively afflictions that strike the older. Yes. What happens when you're dealing with a young person who's dying? Um, Of Alzheimer's dementia or in general? No, no, just in in general. general. Um, Typically, younger people have a more um, 
thoughtful and conscious kind of dying process because they have to reconcile the fact that the 30, 40 years they thought they had in front of them are now gone. Um, so it's really an opportunity for them to try and make peace with that, but also accept that their life only made it this far. And how um, do you do that for them? It's not so much the 30, 40 years are gone, it's that the 30, 40 years are never going to happen. Right. And, and so what's the technique for someone who, say, is in their 20s or 30s who has just nothing can be done? And it is unfair if you look at life as like, well, the average life is 75 to 80 years and you're just not even getting the average. It's, it's so unfair. Walk me through how you would, if someone came to you and said, you know, I'm dying, I'm in my 30s, I don't know how to deal with this, mm-hmm. I need help. Family comes to you with the same thing. What do you do? Yeah. So first of all, acknowledging that this is not a scenario that anybody wanted to encounter in the first place right. and that it's more rare, right? So just acknowledging that this sucks and this really isn't where they wanted to be. But then again, giving them the same tools that you would get everybody else. Let's take control here. You know, choose your team who you want around you. We're going to design how you want your death. We're going to make sure you say goodbye. We're going to make sure you're well taken care of. So kind of a similar process, but just acknowledging that, you know, this life unfortunately won't go as far as we hoped it would. Um, I, I once, I had a friend who lost an eight-year-old to cancer, and she was diagnosed when she was three. So with her childhood, you know, as she developed as a child, it was almost like she just took on this role as being a child with cancer. And like Maury, she started to give us insight as to what that was like and giving us the wisdom of how to take care of her and what her fears were and how we could comfort her. And so I think really listening to the dying person and what they're going through and just helping them in that space, we get the wisdom, but but we're also, you know, helping them as well. And it's it's more difficult working with people who are younger. And infant loss is also hard as well, which is something Well, I, I would imagine as someone who lost a little girl, I would imagine it's not just the child. It's the parents, you know, yes. that it's, you know, people who are losing their older parents to dementia, Alzheimer's, cancer in their 90s. It's sad, it's heartbreaking, it's grievous, but it you could always say this is just part of life. This is right. a circle of life. It's expected in some way you or another. You can't say that to no. parents when they lose a child. And I don't know that there's any... And look, we're not here to provide an answer for every single scenario of, of so, some things in life are just so grievous and so difficult to bear yeah. that no doula, no hospice, no rabbi, priest, or anybody is, is, is capable of providing the comfort. Uh, the only thing that, that does that is time. Yeah. And long, long, long stretches of time. It's mm-hmm. as almost as if the idea of it, and I speak from experience, the idea of it is just too big to swallow in one bite. And you're forced to just sort of nibble at it for years until finally one day you've ingested enough of it that somehow you come to some sort of peace with it. Yeah. But it takes a long time to eat that. Or I notice a lot of the parents who go through that, they turn it into something. Um, The family I'm talking about, 
They're actually personal friends of mine, but the mom went back to school and is now a hospice RN for children's. Mm. Oh, that's for great. children. Yeah. And yeah. so she. That's where she put her grief. Yeah, she put her grief somewhere. Right. Yeah. You have worked in hospice, did yes. that before you became, what's the difference between hospice's approach and what a doula does? Well, hospice is a great, is a really great benefit that's given to everybody, you know, through Medicare. Um, so it's paid for and you get a whole team of experts that come to the house ranging from your clinical care all the way through social work and spiritual care and even volunteer support. Um, but what the limits of hospice is that they can only offer you X amount of visits per week. And they're also tied to a healthcare organization. And so they work for that organization. What I do as a doula is I can tell my clients for sure, look them in the eyes and say, I work directly for you. And so whatever you need, we're going to advocate for that. Some hospices are better than others. So if I have a client who's not on a hospice that's who's on a hospice that's not performing for them in the way that they should be according to Medicare guidelines, I'm going to take them off of that hospice and put them on one that does. So really working outside of hospice gives me the ability to be a true advocate for my clients. How much do you as a doula have to be there? Like how much is presence? It depends. You know, I'm when you're on my service, I'm kind of always there. I'm phone, email, text, whatever. But really, I come in to the times my big, my first point of contact is a is a planning meeting, and the dying person gets to choose their team, and their team gets roles, and we print we print out that plan of care, and everyone has a copy, including hospice, so everyone knows the plan. And then I kind of follow up with them along the way as they go throughout their dying journey, and we talk about what's going on. Um, Another big point of contact is if I come over after the person dies and I do the after-death body care for them, you know, leading a ritual washing ceremony or preparing the body to just lie there for a day or two so family can come and say goodbye. Um, so it really depends. People make their individual plans, but I offer everything from pre-planning services all the way through getting you to your final resting place. Mm. Where does faith and spirituality play a part in all of this and what have you noticed about people who uh you know have been given terminal diagnoses those with faith and and those without in terms of the differences of how they accept it how they approach it the comfort it gives them etc well faith is an excellent tool you know for anybody who has it and has cultivated it. Um, I think we're living in a time and space right now where more people are stepping away from, I guess, churches and organized religion. So we're dealing with a lot of people who are more spiritual, not religious. So when they're looking at their life interrupted by illness, they don't have an automatic go-to to what an outcome can be like um, an afterlife or, or Jesus or some kind of religion. So they have a little bit more shuffle, but ultimately dying is spiritual and existential. And even the atheist is going to sit there and wonder, what's this going to be like? You know, what was my life like? What's going to happen after, even if I'm just dirt? All of this is an existential thought process that I believe to be ultimately spiritual. Mm. Um, so dying in itself is the spiritual space. And as a doula, when I come into that space, I open, I open it up for the people who are dying to express whatever spiritual, you know, things come into their space. But clearly, there's a big difference between someone who has accepted 
and and truly believes that this is just a passage to mm -hmm. another existence, that they're going to an afterlife, that they're going to be with Jesus, they're going to be with their loved ones. It's a my observation, and having dealt with many, many, many people in those situations, I'm not a doula, but I'm I'm sort of like a an honorary one because uh, you know, uh, having written not only Tuesdays with Maury but books that have titles like the Five People You Meet in Heaven, right. there are a lot of people seem to think <laughs> I know something magical about what's going to happen at the end, and I'm I'm often invited in to people's lives at the end, or could I talk to somebody, etc. And certainly the people who say I'm going to see my husband soon, you know, I can't wait to see my parents again, it's it's. It's an enormous comfort, I find, and it's an enormous difference in how they approach their their dying than people who are, as you point out, a lot of people moved away from those kinds of concepts, and it's just a big mystery, you know, like, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. What have been your observations of the differences? Well, you know what's interesting is no matter where someone comes at um, in their own spiritual space is that when they do start transitioning into their unconscious dying space, we notice that there's, some people might call it a hallucination, some people might call it like a little bit of crossing over the veil, mm -hmm. but it's very common that people, no matter what faith religion, see, speak to, reach out for family members that have already gone that we can't see. Um, so there is something mystical and magical there that's happening, no matter what that person believes. And I know this is a high percentage, but I would say I see it, uh, you know, upwards of 80, 90% of the time wow. um, with people that I'm working with. It, it's one of those phenomenons. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it is a wow. strong pattern. I well, love that. Do mm -hmm. you encourage people family members to be there in the final breath if it's what the dying person wants so everything that i get i get from the dying usually they want to be comforted and i do think that being present for the final breath is like one of those magical moments in life that if you can experience it's you'll it's i mean it'll change you um so i would encourage way? it well i mean there is something happens when people, so when people die, essentially their breath slows down and slows down. So when people are watching, you notice that the time between breaths gets longer and longer. And then finally, they just don't take another breath, but everyone is in that moment sort of expecting them to. And then when they don't, it's like, there's almost like this whoosh type it's hard to explain. It doesn't have yeah. any explanation, but there is something. There is something that happens in that space. And it changes the people who are observing it? Yeah. In what way? I mean, it's something they'll never forget. But not in a horrifying way. No, never in, in a horrifying way. Yeah. In an accepting way. You know, a lot of people will come back to me and say, I'm so glad I'm there. I was there, even though I might have been really afraid to be in the first place. See, I have found, uh, we went through that with our little girl, Chica, and uh, we were there for her final, well, we were there for everything, but, but, but her final minutes, we were in the bed with her, final really couple of hours, mm -hmm. and counted down her heartbeats. We were able to see that in her breaths. And for us, because she was small, it was never a question because we didn't want her to be without us for one split second 
until she was no longer on this earth. So it wasn't ever a question that we could, even if we were, even if it scared us to the point or broke our hearts, it didn't matter. She was more important than what was going on in, inside ourselves. Um, I found it to be um, uh, satisfying in that we had cared for her to the very last second of her life. Mm -hmm. And then incredibly heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't ever recall crying that way ever in my life. And I've lost my parents and I've lost other loved ones and all the rest. But uh, it, it was so. So the point I'm making is that it can be the best and the worst. You know, you, you yeah. say, well, I was there for them. I, I did everything I could while they were here. She's someplace else now, and hopefully she's being in the arms of God, and God's taking care of her now. And 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 so there was never a moment where she was alone, mm -hmm. and that's what you worry about. I think not just for children. Mm -hmm. I think for you know your your loved ones, your older ones, whatever. You want to take care of them, and it gives you that sense of well, I was there for them right up until the end. As opposed to if you're not in the room, if you're outside. And then a doctor comes out or a nurse comes out or a hospice worker comes out and says they're gone or right. whatever those mm -hmm. words are. Y at the moment, it might be easier to absorb it. But down the pike, you find yourself thinking about the gap between the last time you saw them and when they died. That last and, and whether or not you should have Hour, been there. Hour, five minutes, yeah, right. day. Yeah, what, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know with and it's different like you're saying with Chica, she was such a little girl, you know, that's a completely different. That's got to hit in a completely different way, but mm -hmm. as we said before with older people dying, I know when my mom died, um the one thing I wrote about it was I said, I wonder if my first breath was as soul-stirring to my mother as her last breath was to me. Hmm. And I don't want to get all choked up, but I mean it it, it takes you full circle. You know, and for me at that moment, it was deep, you know, because yeah. I thought I she was there when I breathed right. and right. now I'm here when she's not. Right. And it's such to me, though, it was the saddest for me. It was like it impacted me like nothing else in this life ever. Yeah, it is the saddest. But I think it's OK. It's OK to feel that ultimate sadness because that's the double, you know, that's the other end of love. Yeah. And it's very painful. I've and it's been the there. selfless yeah. part of love, yeah. I think, yeah. where you have to give up something so big, which is somebody's life, right? Right. right? So you have to be willing to do it much like what you do with everybody for them, for right. the dying person. Right. How much of your work as a doula uh, continues after the actual death? Um, not much, just because the way that I try to do it is, again, try to cultivate that healthier grief model before. Right. I don't, I'm not a Greek, grief expert. I right. don't do a lot of work with grief, but I do touch back and keep relationships with some right. of the families I've worked with, and they'll refer to me again as well. But sometimes I'll meet up for a glass of wine and have right. dinner together. And Is there nice. an inverse ratio, you think, to how much preparation people put in for the dying as to the grief that they feel afterwards? Yes. Yeah. The more the more we face it before the death happens, the better we are after. And this is what a doula That makes does. total sense. Mm -hmm. I keep saying doula does. There's something like onomatopoetic about it. <laughs> um, 
Are there many people in your profession right now? It's a it's a very rapidly growing profession. Mm. Um, it makes sense, right? So we have the birth doula movement, and now mm. we're really building the death doula movement or death care. I would mm-hmm. say it's not just doulas. You know, it's freelance funeral directors, it's financial coordinators, right. it's pre planning experts. So the field is growing, and I'm very excited you know, to cultivate at least a very good community here in Los Angeles where I live. Yeah. Well, Jill Shock, thank you for spending some time with us and and illuminating what a death doula does. And and I think whether you use the phrase doula, hospice worker, loved one, uh, religious cleric, uh, good friend, you know, these are, these are, the titles don't matter as much as the theory, which is if we accept the fact that dying is part of life, and as Maury would say frequently, you know, there's a little bird on your shoulder. You got to ask him every day, is today the day I die? And knowing that it, the answer is going to be no every day except one. But whatever day that one answer is yes, are you prepared for that? Have you lived your life in a certain way so that you're ready for that moment? And this is much of what you're saying is all about that. It's about being prepared. It's about facing it when you know it's going to come, saying your goodbye, saying your I forgive yous, saying your I love yous, which mm-hmm. is really, it's amazing how many people regret, oh, I didn't tell her or him I loved him before he died. And you said, what were you waiting for? You know, And I don't know, I just didn't think that they were really going to die, or I thought I'd have more time, or I thought I'd have an opportunity. And they stand at tombstones and talk to you know, pieces of granite and say things that they should have said when the person was right in front of them. Right. So this is all part of that same culture, which I think is, you know, Maury was onto it 25 years ago. Yes, he was. And uh, you're, you're furthering it. And so um, hats off to you, and thank you for the work that you do. How can people find out more about you? Well, my website is deathdoulala.com, and so is my Instagram and Facebook handles. So I try to push education, but also local events where people can come and be involved even if they're not dying. Good to know. All right. Uh, Hopefully that was illuminating uh, for you all and uh, an upbeat in the way as much as it could be, you know, (laughs) because one of the big challenges in in all of this is if you're going to talk about death, how do you do it without horrifying people? How do you right. do it without scaring people? How do you do it without crying? The answer is you try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, there are some tears and sometimes it can be scary, but everything is less scary when you talk about it and right. look it in the eye. And death is, it will be the way all of us will leave this planet, unless some of you have some rocket ships in the backyard that are going to take you someplace <laughs> else. We're all going the same way. So we might as well look. Look it in the eye. Uh, That's going to do it for this edition of Tuesday People. We'll be back next Tuesday with another illuminating discussion and uh, more of the lessons learned by an old professor's bedside 25 years ago that still hold up today. Uh, Until then, on behalf of Lisa Goich and our, our guest, Jill Schock, we thank you for being part of Tuesday People this Tuesday, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People.